Good evening and welcome. The program is Subject ACT on your people-powered radio 2XX FM 98.3. I'm Sophie Singh and it's wonderful to have your company. On Subject ACT we bring you stories connecting with our local Canberra community and beyond, exploring current and community affairs with a global dimension. In July 2013, then-Prime Minister Kevin Rudd announced that no people who tried to reach Australia by boat to seek asylum would ever settle in Australia. Instead, all new arrivals would be automatically sent to Australia's offshore detention camps in Nauru or Manus Island in PNG. To onlookers, that is, the Australian public, Rudd's announcement seemed to be part of an ugly race with Liberal leader Tony Abbott to outdo each other in the harshness of their approaches towards so-called boat people. Now, maybe there was something more going on, but irrespective, Rudd's policy has meant that thousands of people have spent years in offshore detention. Still hundreds remain trapped in this policy regime, which the Liberal National Government, which came into power in 2013, have firmly kept in place. Tonight, I'm in conversation with Tim McKenna. Tim is a local Canberran who for many years has supported a number of the men being held in PNG. Tim recently visited PNG and has seen firsthand the impact that seven years in detention has done to the men still there. And just a heads up, about 10 minutes into my conversation with Tim, the testing of the fire alarm system can be heard in the background. Tim, thank you very much for speaking with Subject ACT today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Sophie. I appreciate the opportunity. Tim, you've visited Papua New Guinea a number of times since you first went in April 2017, the purpose of which was to talk with and support the men who at that time were being held in the detention centre on Manus Island. You most recently visited in March of this year, where most of the men, I think about 185, apart from a handful, are now living in Port Moresby. Mm -hmm. Tim, can I ask, in that visit in March, was there anything that struck you most about the situation of the men, something that was new that you hadn't seen in your previous visits? Well, I think the thing that most struck me is that after fleeing their homelands in fear of their lives, then many spending years in unsafe situations in other countries, and now after seven years in PNG, dominated by further trauma, unresolved health issues, and continued uncertainty about resettlement, that these men just want to get to a safe place as soon as possible. That's the thing on their mind all the time, and that is the critical issue. In each of the reports that you've made after returning from your visit, the thing that struck out was the impact that this ongoing incarceration is having on mental health. Mm -hmm. Did you again see a marked deterioration in your most recent visit? There's still a big problem. Let me add a couple of things that have contributed to that. Well, the first one is, of course, the fear of the onset of COVID in their crowded conditions in a country with little capacity to detect or treat the virus, and where some of the locals, admittedly like some of our locals, uh, could blame foreigners for transmitting the disease. I guess what was different now is that in previous visits, all my assessments of mental health were based on my own sense of the problem. Um, But since then, doctors' submissions to the 2019 Medivac Senate inquiry confirmed my worst fears that, as what I'd been seeing as a layman, were true. Uh, It said that 580 Medivac applications from PNG and Nauru, 91% had psychiatric health problems and 38% had post-traumatic stress disorders. 
they are extraordinarily high figures for any sort of population. Absolutely. Now, as a result of Medivac, and you know, one of the changes I'd seen, is that most of the serious mental health cases had been evacuated. But some of the worst cases weren't able to be evacuated because of this problem. Medivac being done from Australia and everything done over the phone could only rely on people being ready and able to be contacted by doctors in Australia for a full assessment to be made and therefore to have them evacuated. If you were so unwell that you couldn't even have that conversation... Right, exactly right, yes. So sadly that wasn't possible, but particularly those who who would stay in their rooms and wouldn't come out. Of course, the way you would normally do that is get help on the ground from independent, trusted specialists uh, with the support of the authorities. Well, this has never happened, and I doubt it will ever happen under this government. What sort of treatment are the people uh, now in Port Moresby able to access? Well, they still get reasonable access to the same old substandard support they've always had access to by the same contractor responsible for the medical crisis in 2018 that prompted the Medivac legislation. But after our support is still difficult because transport uh, for them, given they're spread all over Port Moresby to hospital, is problematic after hours. And more importantly, as I said, the serious cases continue to need evacuation to Australia. That's been stopped and they can't get treatment for that in PNG. And again, mental health has the worst problem. Now, since, I guess, in the last 12 months, I have talked to a number of doctors about issues around treating mental health, and they all say the same thing. When mental illness is caused by the environment that people are in, it cannot be effectively treated until those people are removed from that environment. Of course. Now, that's exactly the case for the guys still in Port Moresby. Their mental health conditions are created by that environment, and it's also still the case, unfortunately, for those held in detention in Australia that have been medivac. But with medivac repealed, uh, there's no way, again, that uh, these people are going to be evacuated by our government. Tim, what are the physical conditions that people are living in? You said that people are dispersed across Port Moors. What yes. are the arrangements? Okay. The arrangements aren't too bad. When I was there in March, most of the men had been moved out of hotels into smaller apartment blocks of about 12 units in the Mm -hmm. community. They've received a barely adequate allowance to buy their own food and cook it for themselves. And the complexes they're in were fenced and and had civilian security guards on the gate, not really professional, but still there. So we we were quite concerned about this initially and some of their initial places they chose to put people in didn't have security and they had to be withdrawn and put somewhere else. But with the onset of COVID-19, the level of security even in these places was assessed as inadequate and the men were moved back into small hotels with more numerous and professional guards and higher fences. The problem for the men is not their accommodation, but what happens once they step outside into a very dangerous city. A small number of men also live in houses and apartments without guards. In previous visits, I visited two such places. Both were very scary places in scary suburbs, and the people were scared too, I'm afraid. So the accommodation is not too bad. The issue is that they really can't go out of their accommodation other than for essential issues. Port Moresby is certainly known as an unsafe city and I understand that Australian expats live in fairly secure compounds. Absolutely. So that constant fear of your own safety must be something that is pervasive. No doubt about that. 
it's particularly a concern for vulnerable foreigners, unlike uh, Australian expats, who have no real protection, particularly once they go outside. They, of course, know they've got smartphones because they need those to communicate on the internet with their families and with us. So increasingly, guys just don't take their phones with them. Uh, They often carry, uh, you know, a five keener note that's about two and a half dollars in their top pocket so that if they are accosted by anybody, they just give them the money and hope that that's enough. And often that is. Uh, On my visit, I met one refugee who'd been savagely beaten some time ago. I'd have to say listening to his story was a harrowing experience, um, particularly when I confirmed it uh, with an independent witness uh, sometime later. So locals also attacked a refugee apartment twice earlier this year. The first attack led to a refugee with a broken leg. The second attack, a few weeks later, security guard was hospitalised. And just last night I was talking to a refugee in Port Moresby and he told me there'd been another beating in recent days. In terms of their impact on the men, these beatings and regular robbery, particularly if they go unpunished, have a way of focusing your mind. I guess it just adds the sense of overall security which doctors say impacts on their mental health together with other impacts which we've already discussed. And when you put it in that context, it's highly understandable why this is having such a damaging effect on mental health. Absolutely. Yeah, there was some information from the UNHCR who actually was quite clear that uh, the fear generated by their environment uh, did contribute to uh, their mental health issues. Tim, when you were there in March, how long were you in PNG? Sure. So I was there for about uh, two weeks, mostly in Port Moresby, but I did spend several days on Manus. So how many guys are still left on Manus? Uh, So there's three. Right, okay. Your days were spent talking with the guys trying to get some help where you could. I mean, was that how you spent the days? Yes. So the way I worked was uh, while I was in Moresby, I operated from the Catholic Bishop's office, which is quite close to the Australian High Commission, where my friend Father Giorgio Lucini works. Uh, So Father uh, Giorgio spends his weekends and what little free time he has uh, during the week supporting the men. He also has a young man named Jason uh, in his office working full time to support the refugees and that man is supervised by one of Father Giorgio's senior staff. Jason's salary and his work is partially funded by donations from Australia. So this has been a, a really good development for us, particularly right now when it's impossible for us to go to PNG. Uh, at least we know there are There's three someone. people who have the refugees' interest at heart yes. um, making some contribution. So when I arrived, uh, the team and I worked out my program, including the people I needed to see and incorporating some tasks that they wanted me to do. Right. Because with only one guy, what they generally do is rate for people to respond to them, rather go out and seeking problems unless uh, a refugee advocate requests them to do so. So the fact I was there is I could go in and and spend a little bit of time in a bit of a deep dive on a couple of cases. As you said, I visited men in their apartments and hotels and one uh, very brief, happy experience was I stayed overnight in one of the apartments with a group of guys that we've been supporting for four years and that was a a wonderful experience just to sort of forget about their situation have a few scotches and have a bit of a chat Um, you know just like normal people yes but that doesn't happen very often so what I then do is meet with Jason daily I'd report to him on what I'd found they also provided me with transport and there was only one case where 
that caused a problem. But I might mention it just to indicate the difficulties because I visited two men I knew were in hospital. They were both having their noses operated on. Many men have problems with their breathing at night and have difficulty sleeping. I don't know a whole lot about this, but I've never seen a place where so many people have had operations on their noses and it never works. So, you know, it's just one example of the limitation of things in medical situations yes. in Port Moresby. I did go to Manus, as I said. It had a twofold purpose. Firstly, and principally, I had some Vincent de Paul business. I work with a, an Australian vintage group which supports vintage people in PNG. When I went in October 17, I first met these people. You'll remember at that time, the men were about to be shoved into the community against the community's will and against their will. Yep. A real recipe for disaster, which it turned out to be. And I felt that we refugee advocates needed to do something for the Manus community as well as for the Manus men. But also while I was there, I visited the three refugees still on Manus. So that support that you're providing through St Vincent de Paul's on Manus Island, what is that? Well, unfortunately, it's non-financial because there are some complications in providing financial support. So what we're trying to do is help them get organised because they've been fairly isolated, in fact, for about five years. No other Viennese person had visited them. So I helped them with a strategic seminar where they got a group of 40 people together for a weekend on an island and we just went through what were their key issues in in what they were trying to do all that usual stuff yep. PNG is not big on sort of organization above the village level so they do great work as Vinnie's people in each village particularly those which are catholic as some of them are so the island we had it on you know, has a Catholic church and everybody on the island is Catholic. Right. And the Vinnie's group is the social service group for that island. Yep. And they do a great job. But then trying to be organised and think about, you know, more, more broad issues. Yep. They've got a massive problem with disability. Uh, well, you can't organise that from, you know, an island conference. No. So we're trying to work uh, with them on ways to solve that problem. But uh, that's really hard work. If you've just tuned in, the program is Subject ACT on your people-powered radio, 2XX FM 98.3. I'm Sophie Singh and tonight we're in conversation with Tim McKenna. Tim is one of many Australians who continue to provide direct support to the people who have been held in detention now for seven years under Australia's offshore detention regime. Through your work with PNG locals, what sense do you get about how they feel about having one location for Australia's offshore detention regime in their country? Do you get any sense of how they feel about that mm, arrangement? I sure do. In Manus, partly from a small few who made a lot of money out of it, the Manus people have been horrified by the whole business. I mean, the first issue was they were actually quite fearful of the guys coming into their community because they'd been told that these guys were all terrorists. That's why they were locked up. Yep. Uh, they were also concerned uh, when, you know, 500 young men who hadn't seen anybody uh, other than and themselves inside, a, you know, a, a jail for three years were suddenly released with more money than they had in a community of 7,000. Yep. You know, it was sort of like a mining town effect in a way. Not quite as bad because they didn't have that much money, but they certainly had some uh, having just some compensation yes. paid. So the social impact on the island was also 
terrible. But within 12 months of, of them being there, a good friend of mine, who now sadly has passed away, uh, she said to me, you know, you know, I thought these people were criminals before they came, and then I just found out that they were young men just like my sons. So that was a nice thing, and I think that was the general reaction. I had a policeman who I knew well on the island. We'd actually had dinner together with a couple of the refugees. Uh, just uh, I thought it would be good to do that. And he said to me quietly during the dinner, he said, Tim, why is the Australian government doing this to these people? And, of course, I couldn't answer. The other thing is, of course, the people felt that their island's reputation internationally had been trashed. Yep. I mean, it's a lovely island. It's a paradise, other than for healthcare, which is really difficult because it's so isolated. And Australia's gone and put a little bit of hell in one corner of it. Finally, of course, they took action. And an important contributing factor to the men being moved to Port Moresby was the people of Manus said, we've had enough. We don't want your blood money anymore. Get them out. And their governor and their parliamentarian saw to that. And it's interesting that some of the same strands of the narrative around, you know, the men being criminals and so on is not too different to the narrative that we have here in Australia. That's true. That's true. You know, one example I remember was when in my first visit, I arrived a couple of days. This is uh, April 17th. A couple of days after a bunch of, I think, drunken uh, sailors that were in the, in the military camp that surrounded the Lombrum camp fired live military ammunition into the camp after a dispute that they'd had with the men. Mr Dutton claimed that this was somehow related to one of the refugees giving some fruit to a child yep. just inside the gate of the camp. That The children were actually from married quarters that are within 50 metres of the fence. So, you know, contact between them was not uncommon. And, uh, you know, it was all done in, in open daylight. The local police commissioner said this was not the reason it happened, but uh, Mr Dutton chose never to withdraw that insinuation. And I think that speaks for itself, Tim. Mm. One of the incentives that Australia used to persuade PNG to house people seeking asylum in its country was that there was going to be additional funding aid. I remember hearing there was sure. going to be the construction of a hospital in uh -huh. one of the more remote areas. Do you know, has any of that happened? OK, well, three things have happened in Manus. I mean, the Manus view is that most of this money went elsewhere. I mean, that's a sort of fundamental difference between PNG and Nauru. In Nauru, all of the people on Nauru benefit from all of the money that results. In PNG, of course, uh, money goes to the national government and, you know, the national government uh, does what it wants with them. But that said, they did build a market. They did build some quarters at the hospital, but they certainly did nothing about the hospital in Lorengau that had to take on additional burden to treat the 500 men that were moved there. Uh, and that, of course, in itself is a scandal. And the other thing that has happened is that the road from Lorengau to the airport has always been the one sealed road, you know, other than in Lorengau town, the one sealed road in Manus. And recently, the road from the turnoff to the airport to Lorengau camp has also been sealed. But I think that's got more to do with the fact that a, a new military base is going to be established right. there rather than, than anything to do with uh, the detention. I have heard, but I can't remember where, that other money was spent in other provinces. But it, or that's, I think, what the Manus people think anyway. Right.
Tim, the men in PNG, while they might have freedom of movement, they don't have the freedom to leave the country. Yes. So it is a form of detention. Yep. They've been there now for seven years. Since yes. then, Prime Minister Kevin Rudd uh, decreed in July 2013 that the people who arrived in Australia by boat to seek asylum would never, ever settle yep. in Australia. Seven years is a long time. I think if we, if we looked back on our last seven years and what we've been doing, a lot's happened. People would talk about their work, study, maybe holiday, maybe marriage, maybe divorce, maybe maybe having kids and certainly, you know, having the opportunity to love and be loved. Mm. And for the people who are in detention, the people still in Nauru, the people in PNG and indeed the people being held in detention here in Australia, they've not been able to move on with those things, things that are just regular life. Yes, absolutely. What's the impact of this prolonged detention without any certainty and just a state of limbo? What's been the impact? Well, I guess uh, just a, a small story for one of the men, you know, he'd be closing on 40 now, who probably has spent 10 years uh, since he's seen his family. He, both his uh, sister and his brother have got married and certainly one of them now has children. And his family sometimes ask, you know, they still don't quite believe that these guys have done nothing wrong. This is true of many. They can't understand why a government in a country, a free country like Australia, is locking people up who have done nothing wrong. And they can't convince their families that this is the case. That's a, a big frustration. So often they left because their families were threatened. Some of them still carry injuries from torture. Some took a while to get here. So just an enormous amount of time that they've spent. And, and then adding to that the constant ongoing security. I mean, the impact is just there's nothing to do. There's nothing really we can do about this at the moment. They continue to have some hope, but it is very draining on them at this stage. They're just exhausted, and all they want to do is be out of it. I mean, I guess they try various techniques to keep themselves sane. A couple have got jobs, but that's almost impossible. And even if they do get jobs, they're often exploited. So it's all a bit of a pointless exercise. Yep. Do you remember that movie Papillon, where oh, yes. the guy was put in solitary confinement for many years? And all he did every day was walk up backwards and forwards in his cell. And that kept him as sane as he could. That was brought to me, I just saw these guys in the evening, many of them come out to have a walk up and down in the, say, 200-metre car park of their apartments. And I must admit, just thinking about it and looking at it, just watching these guys walking slowly up and down, up and down, up and down, this was the highlight of their day. And I walked with them sometimes, but there was nothing to talk about. So, And that's going thinking, on for seven uh, yeah. years. Yeah, it's just appalling. Yeah. You have a better sense of what's going on on the ground in PNG. Do you see any sense that the Australian government has a plan to resolve this situation? Because surely, at some point, this detention has to end. You'd think so, wouldn't you? Yes, yes, a plan would be a great idea, wouldn't it? Yeah, you know, Remind me of that ad, you know, of the guy standing in his house and saying, I think we should have a plan to look after it after it's already burnt down, you know? It's the same sort of situation. I think we should talk about the solution. I mean, there are two levels of the solution. The first is for Australia to establish a humane approach to refugee and asylum seeker policy in all its dimensions, not just what's going on in Manus and, and Nauru. Uh, and that can only even begin to happen once we get rid of this government. I mean, they are just not into a humane approach. Everything that is improved under their watch is through hard slog, uh, legal action, 
protests to try and get these people to at least acknowledge some degree of humanity as these guys get worse and worse. Yes. But in relation to the offshore regime and the current victims of that regime, we can't wait for that. Now, the short-term solution, of course, has been obvious for seven years, except the New Zealand offer to yes. take 150 people a year. And it's still the simplest solution. You know, you talked about the government's effort. Well, its only plan is for the US deal, which the government itself says will finish this year. Well, what's plan B, government? Because we've known for years that many people would be rejected by the US. We now know that there's close to 200 who've been rejected by the US. And we expect as the US finishes, it will declare possibly another 100 that it can't take. So what are we going to do yeah. about that, government? Now, there's people who've said the government might eventually accept the New Zealand solution. You know, there's all this sense that maybe, you know, once the US solution's finished, they'll accept. Well, they better move damn quickly because not only for the people themselves, but as we know, there's a New Zealand election in three months. And it's only the Adern government that has accepted Australia's condition on the deal that we be allowed to ban all people in New Zealand from ever entering Australia. That's any people that they've That's moved. there under that deal. That's right. And the previous New Zealand government would not accept this ban. That's the Nationals. Yep. And they said, quite rightly, we don't want to have two classes of New Zealand citizens. Now, there's no evidence that I've seen of what the approach would be by a newly elected national government. There's no need to delay this acceptance, so why not get on with it right now? Tim, you're a retired army officer, and presumably that experience has given you a strong sense of service to country and, and what that means. You've seen the damage that's been done to the people who have been subject to Australia's harsh immigration uh, detention mm -hmm. regime. What's that done in terms of your perception of Australia? How's that changed your perception? Well, I'd have to say there's just so much to love about this country and its people. And I don't see my positive feelings about Australia ever changing. And nor, frankly, has it diminished my lifelong passion to see Australia remain a secure country. But if we're going to do security, we've got to use ethical means. Now, there's a real debate, of course, in relation to the refugee issue, particularly the people left on Manus. The government claims that uh, keeping them there is a matter of national security. That's complete nonsense. So I don't see this border control as a serious national security issue. What I am, though, is ashamed of the evil actions of this current government that has done in our name. And we are a democracy, we are a federation, so I think there is still hope. So I feel that one of the things I can do to serve my country right now is to fight this cruel policy and to do all that I can to mitigate the impact of its cruelty on its victims. Tim, I thank you very much for your tireless advocacy for the people who are still suffering under Australia's uh, regime. Thank you very much for speaking with me today. I really appreciate it. Sophie, thanks. I really enjoyed it. And thanks for your interest in this area as well. Thank you. That was Tim McKenna on the impact that ongoing detention is having on the hundreds of men still being held in PNG under Australia's refugee policies. Seven years is a long time and we should expect that our government is doing everything to bring this situation to an end. And that brings us to the end of tonight's program. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm Sophie Singh. Thanks for listening. Music